welcome to the Vine Pair Podcast, the show where we talk about the conversations you have with a glass in hand. From Vine Pair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. So Zach, this week on the podcast, I thought we'd talk about a subject that we sort of hinted at in our Napa podcast that we ran a few weeks ago. If you haven't listened to the Napa podcast, check it out. Um, And that was like, what are some undiscovered or under the radar wine regions in North America that people should really be paying attention to. And, and by paying attention to, I don't mean just that the quality of wine coming out of those regions is exceptional, but they're, they've already become regions that are really excellent to go and visit. Um, so, you know, if, if you're sick of the crowds in Napa and Sonoma, you don't want to go sick to the of Glamour the tasting Valley. room fees. Exactly. Where can you go and have an amazing wine country experience that is not those places. So I, I thought we'd talk about four of them today. I'm, I'm going to talk about two and you're going to talk about two uh, and, you know, sort of teach each other because I think they're both, we each have regions that the other hasn't been to, which I'm super excited about. Uh, so I, I thought I'd kick it off with, with yours. So uh, what's your first region? All right. Well, as I mentioned at the top, I am in Seattle. And so I'm going to start with a region that's relatively close to home and that's uh, Walla Walla here in Washington State. Walla Walla is a wine region that I think most wine drinkers are at least vaguely familiar with. If nothing else, the name is kind of memorable. Um, But what I want to advocate for here are a couple of things. One is Walla Walla is just a great town. It's, I think, an ideal size for um, a wine tourism-centered town in that it's big enough that there is industry there. There's also Whitman College, so it's not just wine. Um, There are some excellent restaurants. There's some um, other things to do. But it is also a town that is clearly now um, driven by the wine industry. So downtown Walla Walla has tasting rooms everywhere. Um, Many of the wineries in the area are closely, um, are very close to downtown. So they're very easy drive. Um, You can see four or five, six wineries in in a day very easily, um, as long as you're being responsible with driving or someone else is driving you if you don't want to be responsible. Um, And of course, It's both beautiful and the wine is excellent. So I'm going to talk about the beauty of the place first because I actually think in some ways the understanding why the wine is good is something that anyone can do because you can go pick up a bottle of wine from Walla Walla pretty much anywhere in the country. But the beauty of the place is a kind of beauty that is a little different than your standard wine region. Um, Walla Walla is a big sort of horseshoe-shaped valley. Um, And what's very striking about it is um, in the southeast, you have the Blue Mountains, which are not enormous but are legit mountains. Um, And kind of surrounding the entirety of the valley are at least sizable hills. And so there's this really striking sort of amphitheater, very large amphitheater effect uh, that you get there. Um, It's also a beautiful area um, of Washington State. It's um, when it's not being used for growing grapes, it's a lot of wheat. And so if you kind of come around harvest, there's this beautiful kind of golden hue to the land that is um, being cultivated for wheat as opposed to for grapes. And especially if you catch it in like the late afternoon sun, it's really, really strikingly pretty. Um, it's also just a, a surprisingly um, diverse wine region. I mean, we think about Walla Walla as a place for Cabernet Sauvignon and to a lesser extent Syrah, and that's definitely true. Um, But there's actually a lot of people playing around with other varietals, um, certainly other Bordeaux varietals like um, Merlot and Cabernet Franc and to some extent Malbec and Petit Verdot, other Rhone varietals like Grenache and Mourvedre. But you're also starting to see people play around a little bit with uh, some classic Spanish varietals like Tempranillo 
and um, just some other off-the-wall stuff. It's definitely more of a red wine region than a white wine region, which, you know, for most wine drinkers is probably a positive. Um, And it's also just incredibly approachable. I mean, there are definitely a few very, very high-end wineries where you can't just walk in um, and get a tasting, but it is um, very, very approachable across the board. Like I said, the downtown area has a lot of tasting rooms that are just open to the public, and you pay, I don't know, 10 bucks max. If you buy a bottle of wine, they'll probably waive the tasting room fee. And I'm going to finish with with an experience that I don't think is anything like what you would have in Napa that I had in Walla Walla, which was um, I went wine tasting with my dad a few years ago, and we did some tasting in other parts of Washington, and then we're in Walla Walla for a couple of days. And we went to a winery that um, someone else had recommended that we go to. And it was our last stop of the day, and um, I had sort of contacted the winemaker to just make sure that um, it was okay if we came kind of towards the end of the day. And he was like, that's fine, no worries, just you know, come in, knock on the door, whatever. So we get to the the winery and we pull up and we are uh, or the tasting room I guess and we pull up and get out and the front of the front like uh, foyer of the tasting room has like a bunch of just random shit in it. There's like a big plastic dinosaur and like a hot dog uh, on a stick sign and just some random stuff. And I'm like, well, I I'm guess sorry, that's I, amazing. Yeah, it really is. I guess that's it. And so we go in and and it's kind of like a, a there's a a curtained off uh, like the the front area is kind of curtained off from the back area. And there's no one there. And so we walk in and, you know, we open the door and we walk in and we're kind of looking around and then sort of like hear from in the back uh, just a voice and a guy yells, you want to taste some fucking wine? And I was like, yeah, we do. So we walk back there and the, the tasting room area is like very darkly lit in the back corner of the tasting room. Uh, he's got some softcore porn playing. And uh, no, that was no, our tasting no, room that's, experience. That's actually not true. No, it's 100 percent true. Uh, and, uh, and so my dad and I tasted wine and tried. Was his wine good? The wine is actually very good. Yeah. And, and you know, we, 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 but, I, but the point is, it is definitely an experience that you would not find in Napa Valley. At least I don't well, think. I mean, maybe someone's out there with a very similar business model, but I don't think so. Was he? Did he? Did he turn the porn off? Was oh no, I, that was friend? definitely no, no. It was like on the projection screen. It was definitely like a, a part of the. Um, of the aesthetic. That's what I, he's going for. Yeah, for sure. There was the definitely guy. like How old was, was the winemaker? Uh he's probably in his like mid forties. This is so good. Is he married? Does he like uh I think he's maybe divorced. This is so good. Yeah. So uh so yeah, I definitely know. I know you probably can't give the name of the winery, but I really I gotta check this place out. Yeah. Well well tell you what, if if you ever make it out to eastern Washington, we'll go there and we'll we'll post a picture of us there. Were there with like, or did without he, did the porn. So ask you to do bong rips afterwards. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if we had asked him he would have he would have gladly obliged. But oh, uh God, no, he was I definitely he's so definitely good. a character. And you know, so I, th- I think it's you know, there's definitely some way more buttoned down wineries. There's a wi- another winery um not far away that has like a multi million dollar collection of Dale Chihuly, the famous Seattle based glass blower, uh, like a multi million dollar collection of his art as that's what's in display in their tasting room. So there's all sides of the coin, but um, but it's definitely um, a very cool place to visit. I would say the one negative of Walla Walla in my mind is that if you go in the summer, it can be just brutally hot during the day, and um, no one really likes drinking red wine in 100 degree heat. But um, it's beautiful um, in the sort of shoulder seasons, and it's less touristy because even though that time of year is miserable to be there, it is definitely that and harvest are the busiest times of year to go visit. Um, there's also um, an airport which actually serves um, a surprising number of destinations in Walla Walla, um, which is good because it is kind of a trek from Seattle. It's like a five-hour drive. Um, 
but yeah, it's an awesome place. Um, it's a lot of fun. Like I said, you can go spend a number of days. There's there's really good food and, and a growing food culture there. And um, yeah, and, and maybe you can stumble on some uh, really interesting tasting room experiences while you're at it. That is amazing. I next time I'm on the West Coast, I want to go to Walla Walla. <laughs> Excellent. So, Adam, uh, why don't you why don't you uh, tell me about uh, maybe where I should be thinking about my next wine visit? So. The ne- my next wine region is eerily similar to yours in terms of proximity to a major city and in terms of the fact that it's in the same state that I live, right? Besides that, there's probably no similarities whatsoever, but um, that state, that region is the Finger Lakes. So the Finger Lakes is about five hours outside of New York City, kind of a long drive, just like uh, you mentioned for Walla Walla from Seattle. Uh, it's in the state of New York, but, com- but feels like it's completely a different place. Um, there, are, I think, unfortunately... In New York City, uh, the North Fork gets a lot more attention just based on its proximity to the city. It's, you know, an hour and a half outside of New York. It's uh, right by the Hamptons. It's on the other fork. That's why it's the North Fork. The South Fork is actually the Hamptons. Uh, so you, it's very easy to get to for lots of wealthy people who, you know, are spending their entire summers at their really expensive beach houses. So even though I don't think the wine is anywhere near the quality of the Finger Lakes, the North Fork sometimes seems to get a lot of play. But if you're looking for an actual incredible wine region that is making the best version of one varietal in North America, Riesling, it's the Finger Lakes. Um, the Finger Lakes is really incredible because, you know, it, it wasn't even really a thing until, you know, the 1950s, 1960s. Uh, so basically, <clears throat> the Finger Lakes is made up of 11 lakes that run across uh, the northern part of New York State. If you didn't want to drive from New York City, you would probably fly into Rochester um, or Syracuse, Syracuse and then drive to one of probably three um, cities, um, towns, you would say, in the in the region. You'd either probably stay in Ithaca, where Cornell and Ithaca College is, or you'd stay in Watkins Glen, where the really famous racetrack is and all of these amazing gorges are, or you would probably stay in Geneva. Right. Where like I would I like to say that the hipsters have located. Um, but then, you know, you'd you'd really be, even though there are these eleven lakes, and the reason they're called the Finger Lakes is because the Native Americans believed that it was uh, these hands of a spirit that put their, you know, put the hands on the earth, and these are the, the fingers of the spirit that made the lakes. But these glacial lakes are really focused on, I would say, two that uh, you would want to focus on when you when you go to visit these wineries. And those are Kiuka Lake and Seneca Lake. Um, and the reason that wine does really well in this region, even though it is bitterly cold in the winter, is because of the lake effect. So the lake holds, retains heat from the summer, and it keeps the ground warm in the winter. So even though there's heavy snows, the vines and the vines' roots are protected, right? So they're able to grow Riesling and get Riesling you know, to an exceptional ripeness that allows this Riesling, I would say, to be on par with Riesling coming out of, you know, the Mosul region, Austria and Alsace. Um, And it's this place where the people who have chosen to live there and make wine truly are there for the wine, right? I think it's proximity to Cornell and Cornell's, um, you know, agriculture program and school means that there's lots of research that's always happening in this region and, and in these vineyards. Um, the region really got its start by Dr. Constantine Frank, who came to the region, uh, you know, as an immigrant from Eastern Europe and saw the region to be very similar to a lot of the grape growing regions from the cold places he was from. Um, and 
really discovered that Riesling could be a grape that, you know, had this amazing opportunity there. And so you just go into these tasting rooms and it's the same as you're talking about with Walla Walla. You maybe pay 10 bucks. Uh, you're very likely to be served by the winemaker or the winemaker's spouse um, or someone who is deeply connected to the property. Every time I went uh, to a tasting room while I visited, I was never served by someone that wasn't educated on the wine. I think that's a lot of the beef that I can I hear from readers sometimes about certain you know higher volume wine regions is that they're being served by someone who's at the tasting room because it's a really good paying job. Um, and they've memorized some of the notes of the wine, but they, you know, they weren't involved in making the wine. They weren't involved in, uh, you know, bottling the wine, et cetera. And that when they go to some of these smaller regions, they get to have those conversations with people that are really involved day to day in the creation of this product that they're now tasting. That's very, very common to experience in the Finger Lakes. I think it's this area too that's just really cool because it's focused on white. And I know you and I have talked about this in other podcasts, but like white wine is actually really awesome. Um, I think it, you know, it gets a bad rap from people who say they only drink red, but high quality white is just incredible. You get a much higher bang for your buck when you, you know, focus on these beautiful whites. You can have wines that are older at a cheaper value because of that. So you can go to some of these restaurants in the Finger Lakes and they have back vintages that you can actually afford. I mean, I could, when I was in the Finger Lakes, I imagined being at a restaurant in Napa and being told that they had, you know, 10 and 20 year old Napa cabs on the list and just thinking about what I would pay. Whereas I saw some Rieslings on some of these lists and they were still under a hundred bucks, you know? So that's, that's something that's super cool. There's a really cool foodie scene that's developing in the region. And then there are just these people that are really, making incredible wine. You know, I mean, there's like Herman J. Weimer is probably the best uh, vineyard right now in the region. And the two guys that own the property, you know, wound up inheriting or purchasing the property from, um, you know, Mr. Weimer himself when he was ready to retire. And they were sort of his protégés. They both went to Cornell. And this was the winery that I talked about in a previous episode when we, when we talked about natural wine. These are guys that are making quote unquote natural wine, but they don't call it natural wine. They just they take care of the land where they farm the grapes. You know, they don't use any pesticides, herbicides, et cetera. They do a natural fermentation that can take up to eight to nine months for fermentation to finish. And they make a wine that really tastes of the place it's made. Um, and their Rieslings are just incredible and in insanely age-worthy, right? And there's just so many producers like that now in this region that make it so exciting. You know, you have young winemakers. I think one of my biggest indicators that a wine region is, is exciting is when you go to a wine region and there are young winemakers that have the ability to make wine in that region and the ability to own wineries and tasting rooms in that region, right? So they're not having to supplement their salary by working for another winery as well, you know, during the day. And this is, this is like their side hustle, right? They've chosen to come to Finger Lakes because it's still, it's this place with unlimited potential because they can afford to be there. And so they can afford to take risks. You know, you go to, the Napa Valley and you may encounter a young winemaker who's making some interesting things. But usually, you know, as we learned again in, in our Napa podcast, these winemakers are, are having to take grapes that no one else wants, right? So they're, they're, not, they're not making wine with Cabernet Sauvignon, which is considered to be the best grape in the valley. They're making wine with Mavedra or they're making wine with Gamay because, you know, that's someone decided to farm it, but then the top wine, wineries weren't paying to, willing to pay top dollar for it. So they're able to get their hands on it and make it at night. You know, and during the day, their vineyard manager somewhere or their winery manager somewhere. 
um, in the Finger Lakes, these people are able to come settle, buy property. I mean, that's that's how cheap the land still is in the Finger Lakes. Most of the land, which is amazing, is still um, so the, the 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 hills slope down to the lakes, and the, these hills are mostly covered with trees, right? So you buy this land, and then you clear the land of the trees. So so much of this land is still vineyard land that we haven't even discovered yet, terroir that we haven't even discovered yet. We don't even know where the best place is really to make, to make, to grow wine in the Finger Lakes is yet. And I think that's what's so exciting. And then they're able to open these wineries and, you know, they're people that are super passionate about the wine they're making and the choice they've made to be there. And I think, yes, there's a lot of that passion in other wine regions as well, for sure. But a lot of those wine regions don't have the potential to really produce a world-class wine. And this region does. You well, there's I mean? definitely something admirable about people who decide to dedicate their lives to making the wine that is incredibly hard for people like me to sell, which is Riesling, uh, <laughs> much as it pains me. I, I have a question, Adam. So I have not been to the Finger Lakes, um, although I've been to Ithaca before, but this was a little bit before I was a, a wine drinker. Um, is there Are people making anything but Riesling? Because I've seen a little bit of like Cabernet Franc from the Finger Lakes, but is that just like a kind of a tiny little part of it? Or, or is it really is it really just Riesling? Or is that still just the, the wine that's actually you know worth going there for? So the, that's the wine that's worth going there for. The Finger Lakes hasn't determined what – so the reason I love the Finger Lakes and I'm really excited about it as a region is it is a region that determined pretty early on this is the grape that does really well here. And we're going to invest in ensuring it does well here and become known for making this kind of wine here, right? So on the, on the white spectrum, we're going to become known as the premier region for Riesling. Um, I think you go to a lot of other we, – we, I, I think it's still very fair as well to call the Finger Lakes emerging, emerging wine regions. And they're still making lots of stuff at lots of different wineries and trying to figure out what grapes work or making the wines that just like the owner happens to like because they had a trip to Tuscany. You know, they used to go to Tuscany all the time. So they decided, oh, I'm going to plant Sangiovese. Like, I don't know if Sangiovese is going to work here, but I like Sangiovese, so I'm going to make Sangiovese. Um, they haven't really determined what that red grape is yet. There's a few people who are doing um, really, really amazing Pinot Noir. So uh, two of those producers are Nathan Kendall um, and Heart and Hands. Both of those producers are doing insanely, insanely delicious Pinot Noirs, but then other people aren't able to pull it off. So, you know, they, they understand what they're doing. Um, you know, there's, there's other producers that are, are trying to make really good Cabernet Franc. So, you know, one of those producers is Domaine Lesseur. This is another one of these younger uh, winemakers I was talking about. It's a husband and wife who are both from France and both made wine in France and then moved to the Finger Lakes and saw, you know, saw that there was a huge opportunity there uh, to own their own winery, right? Both of them were from families that had wineries, but they weren't the children, I guess, that were going to inherit those wineries, which is kind of funny to think about that European system where they're not the oldest, so it's not theirs. Um, <laughs> so they moved to the Finger Lakes and, you know, have, have their own winery here. And they're doing really great Cabernet Franc, but then you go and you try other people's Cabernet Franc and it's not as great. I think another producer that's, that's getting much better at it, they make in, amazing Riesling is Boundary Breaks. Um, they're like super geeky, probably the geekiest producer in the region. Um, and they also are, are doing really good Cab Francs or, you know, working at that at this point in time. But it's hard because the region just isn't sure what red will 
do well because it's all about, as we know, getting the grapes ripe. And the Finger Lakes is pretty far north. It's really close to the border of Canada. And it's it's about to get cold there, right? Yeah, we're in August, but they're probably already close to harvest. Um, and, you know, in early October, it's going to start getting freezing there. And, you know, that means that these red grapes may not get ripe as appropriately as they need to. So maybe it is just a white wine region. But I definitely know people are trying. And the only the only thing I heard from every producer that I've met with when I've been in the region is the one issue they do have, which is like they have to do it even if they don't want to. So I've had certain producers say like, look, we really only would like to be known as a specialist in Riesling, but we have to have a red because that's asked for every time we – have people in our tasting room. You know, we have a lot of people who at this point, because they're still this emerging region, know of it as a place that makes wine, but haven't really understood that it's really the premier place for this one grape. And so they show up in the tasting room, they don't even want to taste the Riesling. So it's just as, <laughs> oh, just as hard for the people in the winery as it is for you in the restaurant, Zach, where they ask, well, what reds do you have? And so, you know, these for wineries, the tasting room fee is something that allows them to make a living. And so they need to have something to be able to pour so that they don't lose that customer. So a lot of them make a red, but a lot of those reds aren't very good. One last question about the Finger Lakes and then maybe we'll move on. Is yes. anyone making sparkling wine up there? They are. Yeah. So, um, Herman J. Weimer is making excellent sparkling wine up there. Constantine, Dr. Constantine Frank, uh, they're making excellent sparkling wine. So there's definitely people that are doing it and it's, freaking delicious yeah i think my last like my last sort of appeal about or the thing that appeals to me having never been to the finger lakes at least as a wine region is it's also i I think a reason to um encourage people to go and it's going to tie into my next region is that it's very hard to get those wines other places they're not distributed pretty widely maybe in new york city you can find some of them a few other east coast markets but like here in seattle there's almost no wine from the finger lakes in the market even you know, unless you really go search it out. Um, and so, you know, that's all the more reason to go visit. Yep. So what's your next region? So I am actually going to go north of the border entirely. Forget near Canada. We're going into Canada. Um, and this is going to be uh, British Columbia wine region generally, specific, more specifically the Okanagan Valley. So again, uh, west coast proximate to me. Uh, actually, the town of Kelowna, which is kind of one of the main hubs, is uh, almost an equivalent drive from Seattle as Walla Walla, although the border crossing can be easy or hard depending on um traffic and your own say history but um so yours is difficult okay i get it (laughs) no uh, mine is easy um people i know maybe less so (laughs) um but um like so a couple things (laughs) yeah exactly he may not be allowed up there um the uh certainly not after this podcast airs um what I would say about uh, the Okanagan Valley and the nearby Similkameen Valley, which is similar but different, um, and I can get into that in a minute, um, is one, as I mentioned, um, is a little bit the case with Walla Walla and is a, a huge driver for me when it comes to visiting a wine region, is it's stunningly beautiful. It's probably the most beautiful wine region I've been to. Um, lake Okanagan is a very long glacial lake um, that spans um, you know, pr- almost 100 miles. Um, it's very narrow, and it's uh, just beautifully carved into the British Columbia um, countryside. And what's cool about it is um, as it meanders from north to south, um, it really, the the wine region changes pretty dramatically. Some of it is driven by um, how far north you are, but some of it is just driven by other factors. So in the north, um, in the near, um, near Kelowna and in further north of that, um, it's cooler. 
um, and the predominant grape growing is oriented towards uh, white and cool climate reds. So there you see Riesling, you see Chardonnay, you see Pinot Noir, you see some excellent sparkling wines being made. Um, as you move further south, uh, the valley uh, sort of uh, widens, or the the you know the river valley or the lake valley, pardon me, widens. You get more um, a little bit more sun, a little bit more heat. Um, and so you start to see uh, Rhone varietals and Bordeaux varietals um, take on a little bit more importance. Um, so it's an incredibly diverse region, and there's good and bad. I think there's something beautiful, as you were talking about, with the Finger Lakes of a region that is dedicated to just one grape. But I do think that if you're thinking about a, a wine trip, a place to visit, it's nice, especially if you have people in your party who like different kinds of wine, to have some diversity. Um, and uh, the Okanagan Valley in particular grows a lot of different grapes and I think does really well with a lot of them. So I'm going to start by talking about the northern part and what I think makes those wines exceptional. And part of it is that you are extremely far north, but because of where the valley is situated, um, it's also extremely warm and sunny during the summer. So um, you're actually at the far north reaches of the Sonoran Desert, um, which reaches all the way from um, down in Mexico up to just across the border into Canada. Um, and it is definitely a desert climate. It's very dry um, with obvious the obvious mitigating factor of proximity to the lake does provide some moisture. It's quite sunny during the summer. And um, as with the Finger Lakes, the presence of the lake does help kind of mitigate uh, frost and snow during the winter. So it protects the vines. And you also get um, this, the, the slopes of the valley are fairly steep. So you get that kind of hillside aspect, even though you're not at a lot of elevation. And as a result, in the north, you get these incredibly high acid, really vibrant wines. I mean, the Riesling uh, maybe isn't quite as good as the Finger Lakes Riesling, but it's definitely got an electricity to it that I really appreciate. Um, the Chardonnay has, you know, brightness and, and acidity and can and can still hold up to some barreling. Although, again, you're seeing some of the challenges of a relatively new wine region where the winemaking approach can be pretty all over the place. You definitely see some people in my opinion, using way too much new oak on a on a on wines in general. And, and Chardonnay, I think, is the place where it's actually most obvious when someone goes overboard. Although again, I think the knowledge base is is growing. And um and Pinot Noir is also exceptional. I think in some cases it's definitely on par with what you would find in Oregon and California, but different. Um the fruit profile is a little bit um darker. It's not as sort of cherry driven and there's a really nice kind of savory note to a lot of the Pinots. And then, um, again, as you move further south, you get into um, some other varietals. And I will say that um, I'm a big fan of Syrah. And uh, I'm a big fan of Syrah both from France, but also I, I do have a real soft spot for a lot of New World Syrah, um, or at least non-traditional location Syrah. And, and I will say that some of the Syrah I had in the Okanagan Valley is some of the very best I've had that's not from France. Um, and that's no small praise from me. Um, so I think that's, you know, those are all really kind of cool elements. The wine scene is definitely developing very rapidly. There are lots of young winemakers um, who own their own wineries or at least are in charge of them. And the other two factors to recommend it are one, generally speaking, the exchange rate is extremely favorable if you're coming from the U.S. So wine is super cheap there. Um, you can get really, really good bottles of wine for like less than $20 um, American in the wine. That's what I like to um, hear. Yeah. And um, the there's a, a nascent or not nascent a growing um food scene um Kelowna in particular has some pretty good restaurants and wine bars um and again it's just a su i mean it's canada man everyone's super friendly it's it's like it's it's laid back you can 
yeah, go in and talk to the winemakers or their, you know, their kids or their spouse or the guy who's been working there for three years because he doesn't know what else to do. Um, and there's a lot of that going on. I will say that the, there are three slight negatives. So one of them, as I learned when I was there, is that Kelowna is referred to as the Jersey Shore of Canada, um, which, you know, take that for what it's worth. But it's weirdly like the hottest part of Canada. Um, and it's actually a place that has does have a little bit of a, a bro-y vibe at times because there are um, there's a lot of people who made money in um, like, let's say, um, natural resource exploitation in like Alberta who have resettled there because it's nicer. Um, and there is some of that. Um, and um, I would also say that um, the winemaking can be kind of inconsistent. Um, as I mentioned, there are definitely people who who are maybe over oaking their wines who don't necessarily understand how to fully express the sense of place that they may be working with. But again, I think that's a thing that's definitely improving. And the the reason behind that is is that for a long time, the British Columbia wine industry was incredibly insular. The, there are still really uh, restrictive tariffs in Canada on importing wine, um, especially from the United States, but really from anywhere. So there isn't as much competition, um, especially in BC. And for a long time, the British Columbia wine industry was just big enough to sort of meet the needs of the local market. It's also, again, we can get in, well, we can't because it's incredibly boring, but there are a lot of uh, restrictions even within Canada about sending wine from one province to another, because apparently that's a thing that they do in Canada um, is restrict that kind of trade. And, um, and so as a result, the BC wine industry has been extremely insular and largely based on sales in the region and then, of course, in Vancouver and the other big population centers in western British Columbia. And as a result, there just hasn't been much pressure on wineries until relatively recently to up their game. And so there have always been people making good wine, but they haven't necessarily stood out enough to motivate some of the other wineries to improve. That is changing. Um, There are a bunch of uh, younger and uh, winemakers often who have experience working abroad. There's a lot of people from Australia and New Zealand, weirdly, who are in um, Canada making wine. Um, and yeah, or people who have at least worked there. It's I, I will tell a brief anecdote. It's not as funny as my uh, last one, but I think it's interesting. So I went to a, uh, when I was there, um, the wine, one of the winemakers who I was visiting invited me to go to this um, sort of Pinot Noir blind tasting. And they had, you know, probably a dozen or so people, each of whom had brought a bottle of Pinot Noir. Now, I unfortunately had not been told about this in advance, so I didn't have any Pinot Noir with me, but they let me sit in anyhow. And we went around the room blind tasting these Pinot Noirs, trying to figure out where they were from. And now, if that was an exercise that I did here in Seattle, we'd probably, with 12 of us, we'd probably have three or four wines from um, Oregon, three or four wines from France. We might have, you know, a little bit of California Pinot Noir. Someone might throw in something from like New Zealand or another oddity. And in this tasting, it was like, here are four Pinot Noirs from New Zealand. Here are three Pinot Noirs from Australia. Here's a Pinot Noir from Tasmania. Like how many people have had Tasmanian Pinot Noir? There was one Oregon and one French Pinot Noir and the rest were Canadian. And I was like, wow, this is a very interesting perspective on the world of wine that I don't share. Um, So there is a little bit of that issue, but I think it's improving. The quality is improving. There are producers there who are incredibly quality-minded, who are working incredibly diligently to make the best possible wine, and they are making really, really, really good wine. Now, (laughs) here are the other two negatives. (laughs) It's a little hard to get to to Kelowna. I mean, again, there's an airport, but as I mentioned, it's a long drive uh, from Vancouver. Um, I mean, it's not as long a drive, but it's still a a three-and-a-half, four-hour drive. and I'm not even sure what your other options are besides Vancouver or flying into Kelowna. I guess maybe you could, there's maybe somewhere, like 
somewhere in Alberta. That's about an equivalent distance, but um, Canadian geography is not my strong suit, so please don't fa- please <laughs> Sorry, don't fact Canada, check that. We didn't study um, in in history. Yeah, I mean, let's be fair. They U.S. geography is not exactly my strongest suit either. Um, and uh, and the other downside is that um, it is unfortunately uh, can be very very locally touristy um we had the weird experience of like being at wineries like small wineries and then seeing like just buses full of um bachelorette or as they call them there i think adorably stagette parties um which is uh not my preferred tasting experience for sure but that's also a thing that i think is harder and harder to avoid in most wine regions uh, in the u.s these days because it's become an incredibly popular thing so um Oh, and you know, I can't believe I didn't even mention this. We, since we talked about it with the Finger Lakes, uh, also exceptional sparkling wine. Um, again, as as you would imagine, perhaps for a, especially in the northern part of the Okanagan, where uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir do very well. Um, there's a lot of excellent sort of traditional method spark- sparkling wine being made. Um, so yeah, it's a beautiful place. You can uh, get drink great wine for really cheap, and uh, those are big selling points to me. So awesome. Well, I've got one more wine region before we go. Try to keep this one a little uh, more brief than I did the last one. Um, But I am really excited about this wine region as well. It's also on the East Coast. Um, And you might say it's one of our like OG wine regions in the US. And the only reason I say that is because it's a wine region that I think probably, you know, America's most famous uh, politician who was obsessed with wine thought was going to be the next the big wine region in America, and that's Tommy Jeff. And uh, Thomas Jefferson is from Virginia, and that wine region is Virginia. Um, I think Virginia is a really exciting place right now that has a lot of possibilities. Um, there's definitely some challenges. It's a it's a more humid environment, so they just have issues in terms of dealing with mold and rot and things like that. It can also be very wet sometimes in the summer. But Virginia is a place that I think is making incredible wine, and a lot of that's driven by one winemaker, and that winemaker is Jim Law. Um he he owns Linden Vineyards. It's in Northern Virginia. Um, and he basically has taken it upon himself to really help build Virginia's wine industry. So a very long time ago when he opened Linden and started winning a lot of awards and people were, were you know, sort of hailing all this praise on him, he opened an apprenticeship program. But part of that program says that if you apply to his apprenticeship program, you must commit to opening a winery in Virginia afterwards. So you can't come apprentice with him and then go and, you know, work in the Finger Lakes or the North Fork or Napa or Walla Walla, right? You have to stay in Virginia. So he's really, I mean, very much been responsible for the growth of of this place. Uh, And lots of winemakers who then are in the rest of the state have, have, you know, been taught under him. And I think that's, that's really cool. That's, again, something you don't see that much anymore. It really is this region where he, he, he and everyone else sees the potential of what it can become. Uh, what's interesting about Virginia is it's really broken into two regions. So the one, the first region is what we call the Northern Virginia region of the Piedmont, uh, which is in Northern Virginia much closer to uh, the Shenandoah you know, mountains and what we call like the Skyline Drive, the, this beautiful drive that people will take you know, in the East Coast through the Appalachians. Um, but it's also really close to D.C. So a lot of those wineries tend to get a lot of people who are day tripping. Um, so although Linden uh, is is one of those wineries that is clo- is in the northern Virginia area, they tend to avoid the um, the bachelorette and bachelor parties because they came up with a really interesting rule, which is that if you want to sit out on their patio, which is this amazing patio on, a, on this huge hill that overlooks all their vineyards, you have to buy a case. 
right? So like if you don't purchase the case, it's called the case club. So if you don't purchase the case, you're more than welcome to taste in the tasting room, but the tasting room is smaller. So you're not really going to show up with a huge bus full of, you know, guys or gals at a bachelor or bachelorette party. So I think they they came up with a really interesting way to avoid that traffic. So that's a pretty idyllic place to go. But then, you know, you definitely have other wineries in that in that area of Northern Virginia that do have that problem just because they're so close to the major city. Um, but the other part of the state that's getting a lot of attention is the Monticello wine region. So the actual area where Jefferson lived, um, very close to Charlottesville and the UVA campus. And there, there's some really incredible wineries. So first of all, you have Barbersville, which is actually owned by one of the largest Italian uh, wine companies in the world. They, they decided they wanted to own a winery in uh, the U.S. and they bought in Virginia, which I think is very interesting. Um, there's, you know, you also have, uh, I mean, Dave Matthews owns a winery there, but we can sort of gloss over that. But but he does. You know, you, you have – I mean, Trump does as well, so I guess yeah, – That's really gloss But his isn't very good, so that's fine. Uh, and he doesn't drink wine at all, so I think it's a little weird that someone who doesn't drink wine makes wine. But whatever. But there are a lot of other really amazing, um, you know, wineries in this area of, of – you know, Monticello, I would say if you're really looking for more of the small town, uh, you know, I don't want to say Napa centric experience, but that is sort of what I'm going to do. Monticello is going to be more your speed because you can use Charlottesville as the base. And there's a lot of incredible restaurants in Charlottesville. And then, you know, you're only a five to 20 minute drive outside of the city in any direction to hit any of these wineries in this region. Um, if you're in the Northern Virginia region and you were staying in the Northern Virginia region, there's not as much infrastructure because it really is, you know, I think still reliant on a lot of, you know, the people driving out from DC that hour and a half and driving back to DC at night. So if you're looking for places to stay, you're not going to find as many quaint high end, you know, or high end hotels as you will in, in Charlottesville, you might be staying in, you know, a Hampton Inn or whatever that's off the highway. Um, and you may not find as many of the restaurants as you would find in the Monticello uh, area, but it's still worth it. You know, in large part, just to go to Linden. Um, but Monticello is really awesome. I think that, you know, there's a lot of really cool stuff that's happening. They make, they mostly make Bordeaux style blends. Um, so again, it's, it's playing up on that, you know, belief that Jefferson had that, you know, everyone says, Oh, we're on the same parallel as Bordeaux. So we must, you know, we must be identical to, you know, Bordeaux. It's, we're very close to the, the water. We, we have a you know a slightly humid climate that feels really similar. These are all the things that Jefferson believed when he came back and planted grapevines at Monticello. Uh, and so a lot of the the people who are making wine now in the region are really trying to follow in those footsteps. And they're people that are making really excellent cabs. I also you know we we had a, a rosé actually pretty recently that came to the office um, from a winery in the region, and it was unbelievable. So I mean I think there are people that are really doing a lot of really cool stuff there and. It's just awesome, too, because you are close to a lot of history and other things to do. And because, you know, the Monticello region is really based around Charlottesville, you have this amazing college town that just has a lot going on. So it's a really amazing vacation. And uh, again, the wine still is super affordable. So you're able to get these, you know, incredible bottles of wine for, you know, 20 to 30 bucks that you just, you know, you can very easily take a case home at the end of the day. Uh, and it's also easy to get to, right? You fly into DC. Uh, it's a pretty quick drive to either of these places. And, you know, you get to have a really great, you know, few days tasting wine in, you know, 
an area that just a lot of people still haven't discovered. Like the the, the majority of people you're going to taste next to are Virginians, um, and a lot of people who you know probably work in DC in some capacity. You're not going to find a lot of people from California, New York, etc., who are just in for the weekend. And there's something that's so cool about that that you know you're a part of this, and it's also really fun. I mean, I know you probably. I had this experience too, to take some of those bottles back and then pop them with friends who've never had wines from this region and watch their expressions when they're really shocked at how amazing they are. Yeah, for sure. And and that's definitely a fun part of, of visiting a little bit more off the beaten path wine region is not only getting to try stuff that you may not otherwise have been able to try, but to be able to bring it back and share it with, you know, if there are people in your life who enjoy wine and, and would enjoy that experience of tasting something that they just cannot have. It's obviously not quite as much fun as going to the place and tasting the wine, but but getting to try it and hear the story behind it is super cool. I'm, I'm curious about Virginia in that, you know, you talked about sort of Bordeaux varietals. Is there is there anything else? I mean, I, I think of that part of the country. I mean, I've, I haven't been to Virginia for uh, wine tasting purposes. I've done a little bit of wine tasting actually in North Carolina um, and some people who are working with either hybrids or um, Native American, um, you know, indigenous American varietals. Is there any of that? Is any of it any good? Or is, is, is anyone who's sort of serious in Virginia working with vinifera? I mean, most people are just working with vinifera. I mean, there's a few people that are trying to play with the indigenous Catawba varietal. Um, and there's a, a few wines that have been written about for it. Um, but I mean, it wasn't my thing. <laughs> I, I know that there's definitely people that are, I think it's cool and geeky and who knows, maybe someone's going to make a natural wine with it at some point in time. Um, <laughs> that might be great. But you know, I, I, I do think the majority of people that are, that are really making wine that I would want to collect, seller, open for special occasions really are some of these, you know, the producers that are focusing on Bordeaux. Um, I think the other thing that they're doing really well is they're, you know, they're, they're very much creating these really amazing tasting room experiences. So, you know, um, King family vineyards is one of those wineries and like they have a polo field on the, on the property. And like any Saturday or Sunday you go there and there's half people who are there are just there to watch polo matches. Um, which I think is really interesting. And like, you wouldn't find because you just, you don't have to, I mean, that, that polo field is, is usable space in Napa. You could put vines there. So why would you have a polo yeah. field? And in, you know, in Virginia still, the land is affordable enough that this family who I think were actually doctors from Houston, um, were able to buy property that allowed them to have all their vineyards and also, you know, have this other hobby they really liked. Uh, so it's, it still is this, this interesting place that's trying to find itself, but Bordeaux seems to be what it's discovered as its strength. Um, you know, and it's just, it's, it's growing and growing. And, um, I, I think, you know, someone actually did email me, uh, after our episode, the NAP episode and literally said to me, like, Virginia is next, uh, just one of our readers. Uh, and I think that, that was pretty telling because I, you know, I wrote back and said, Hey, where do you live? And they said, Oh, I live in DC, but I'm telling you, it's like, it's, it's huge. I've had incredible bottles over the last few years. And I, you know, I, I keep coming, we get some submissions every once in a while and the wine is getting better and better. And I do think it's going to be, you know, especially if you're into red, sort of like the East Coast Napa eventually. And uh, so it's it's a place to really check out. Cool. Excellent. Well, I look forward to uh, maybe one day visiting the those East Coast regions that I haven't been to and maybe yeah. I'll come out to the West Coast. I agree. And I hope uh, everyone listening, we inspired to check out some wine regions that aren't just the big banner names that all of us know, because you can find some really exciting gems. Yeah. And I would love, um, as Adam mentioned, um, if you guys have thoughts on other wine regions in the in the North America, in North America, you know, I've heard interesting things about like the Texas Hill Country or even um, some of the wine country in, in uh, Mexico. And, you know, if you've had experiences or you uh, you've got other recommendations for us, man, we would love to hear about them. 
Yeah, just shoot us an email, info at vinepair.com, or uh, you know, record a message for us with the memo app on your phone and send us the voice file so we can play it on a future episode. That would be awesome. And Zach, I'll talk to you next week. Sounds great, Adam. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vinepair is recorded in New York City at Vinepair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot, and the show is produced by Zach Jewell and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grimberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vinepair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.